Welcome to episode 70 of The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Sarah Hilton. One of the things I haven't really done with this podcast is introduce guests with their bio. And in part, I thought, you know, you could always look that up. You could go to their websites or maybe you already know the guest. But more recently, I've been thinking, even when I listen to a podcast, I like to get a little bit of an introduction to why I might be interested in this person. And of course, it's my guest's accomplishments that are often why I approach them and ask them to be on the show. And we don't always get to all the things they've done uh, in their careers on the episode. So from now on, I think I will give a a brief introduction. And if you don't like it, you can let me know. (laughs) All right, so Sarah Hilton is a freelance photographer based in Mumbai, India. She covers women, conflict, and migration. Sarah has worked for National Geographic, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Harper's Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, Bloomberg News, Vogue Magazine, and The Financial Times, just to name a few. And in 2018 alone, uh, she received a fellowship from the International Women's Media Foundation, uh, a grant from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, and you will hear me mispronounce that in the show. I keep saying Pulitzer. Uh, She was also the recipient of the gold winner in portrait photography from the National Magazine Awards. Sarah is also, I believe, an early member of Women Photograph. And for those of you who don't know what Women Photograph is, uh, you could visit them at womenphotograph.com, and that's women plural. You can also find them at, at Women Photograph on Twitter. So Sarah and I sat down at the School of Visual Arts, and we talked about how she developed a sense of social justice, how she ended up choosing photography as her method of communication, especially portraiture, and what it takes to gain the trust of those who have every right to be suspicious of others. Uh, And we are sponsored today by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. But before we get to today's episode, I did mention earlier that I would read aloud your events if you invited me on Facebook. And you can find me on Facebook at Real Photo Show. First, let me remind everyone that I am the juror for the Raw Exhibition from the Noise Arts Garage in Atlantic City. And something I haven't mentioned before, the winner of the Juror's Choice Award will be featured on the show during the reception. You can find out more about how to enter the show on the link that is on the realphotoshow.com website. The deadline to apply is July 13th, so that's coming up soon. So I did get a few invitations that line up with today's episode, and I release episodes about every 14 days, and that's how you know if your event uh, will line up with the next podcast release. All right, so Carl Gunhouse of Transmitter Gallery posted their next show, Stop Making Sense. Uh, The dates of that show are June 22nd to July 29th, and the reception for that show is June 22nd. Uh, from 6 to 9 p.m. The show features work from Darren Bader, Lauren DiCiocchio, Chris Dunlap, Dolly Greenfield, Yin Ho, and Andrew Ohanisian. And my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Ephraim Zolani Mandel posted session June 2018, uh, hosted by Transcender. I'll just read you the description. Done in tandem with the closing of Re Art Show's 21st show in the Pfizer building. Transcender has invited Ephraim to select artists from his fourth curated show to present their works. Uh, joining us will be Leander Nust, Eileen Ray Walsh, Luba Drozd, Casey Chromatix, and Sarah E. Brook. And that is Tuesday, June 26th at 7 p.m. at Art During the Occupation Gallery in Bushwick. And finally, we have from Rola Hayat, Film Screening, Artists Respond to Gaza, hosted by Apex Art at the Mayday Space in Brooklyn. Uh, This is on Thursday, July 26th from 7 to 9 p.m. 
In conjunction with the exhibition Light in Wartime on Photographic Responses to Conflict and War, join Apex Art at Mayday Space for a double screening and discussion on life in Gaza and the landscapes of occupation and creativity under siege. The screening will be followed by a panel discussion featuring filmmakers Takrid Shukar Visoso, Julian Maynard Smith, Matthew Castle, uh, in conversation with sociologist Mohammed Hamad, filmmaker Heather Tenzer, and exhibition curator Rola Hayat. All right. Once again, I apologize for all the names I have mispronounced uh, in the announcements. Oh, and just one last thing. During our conversation, it came up that there was this great camera repair place at the Penumbra Foundation, and it's called Camera Doctor. But we couldn't remember the gentleman's name who runs the operation, and that is Frank Rubio, who used to repair cameras at Lens and Repro. Uh, So my guest again today is Sarah Hilton. Enjoy the show, everyone, and we will talk soon. Well, let me ask it a different way. How much time do you spend in India now? So I'm based in India. I was between New York and India for, well, I was eight years going back and forth. And then Trump came into power. I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard a little A earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trump came into power and I was paying astronomical rent and I just thought, why am I doing this? I spent all my time over there anyway, so let me just find an apartment there and then travel back here when I need to. Because most of your work now is in India? It's not. I'm based there, Mm -hmm. but I, I mean, this past year I've been in El Salvador. I've been in the Dominican Republic. Uh, I'm going to Pakistan. I've been to Sri Lanka. So I do a lot of work regionally, but... I would say India is more of a base um, where I can just unpack my bags and also find inspiration. And do you speak any of the dialects? I've been learning slowly, Uh slowly. (laughs) So I speak a little little bit of Hindi, yeah, (laughs) enough to get me by. But sometimes it's embarrassing, in Mm -hmm. fact, because I've been there Eight years off and on, and I still consider myself basic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very difficult language to learn. You know, I so I, I only spent about six months in the in the Middle East, but hmm. I know that um, my Palestinian friends were always uh, like, like getting on me for not learning Arabic faster. It's like it's so easy. What's wrong with you? <laughs> exactly, and I think even. I mean, most people really appreciate when you make the effort and you try and speak the local language. But I think being based in Mumbai, people speak to you in English. So yes. it's very easy to get by without yep. knowing the language. Exactly. Well, what brought you to India originally? So you're from Canada. Uh, and then were you in Brooklyn for a while then? or No. Did that come after India? That came after. I first traveled to India. I was doing a master's degree in London. Uh, in international conflict studies. And uh, my father passed away in the middle of my master's degree. Mm. And I was so heavy into my program that I completed the program during all of this. And then when it all finished, I thought, I'm taking a trip. I need to go somewhere to process this. 
So I traveled to India for the first time. I was meant to stay for three weeks and I stayed for nine months. Mm. And then it became part of my blood. It was it was like a second home to me. When you first went out there, were you already photographing? What were you doing? Not at all. I was more involved in the humanitarian sector. Uh, so I was working after my master's and after going to India, I was working with the Danish Refugee Council, living in northern Uganda on the border with South Sudan. And my dreams of saving the world were uh, still there, but I realized that my hopes of working in that sector and doing that uh, kind of quote-unquote humanitarian work was not how I was going to move through the world. And I slowly started picking up a camera and uh, documenting people and hearing their stories. And I kind of learned storytelling through my humanitarian work. Mm. And then I realized I needed to go back to school and I needed to learn what a shutter speed was. <laughs> and this was in 2013, so not wow. that long ago. No. And I went to ICP. Yes. So that's yeah. that's when I moved here. Oh, okay. And so that's when you set up in Brooklyn. Yeah. All right. And uh, ICP, you were doing the uh, the documentary sort of track or program? Yeah. At that time, the program was called Photojournalism and Documentary Photography. I think it's called something different now. Yeah. I can't remember. <laughs> Media narratives or... But yeah, it's, it still exists under a different name. Who is that? So 2013, was Stanley Greenberg there or Greg Miller or... Yeah. Greg mm -hmm. Miller was one of my most inspiring teachers. Um, we had a major soul connection. Ah, nice. And Karen, Karen Marshall was my seminar teacher. And we were meant to have, we were meant to rotate between different, different teachers, but she, I stuck with her for the whole time. Mm. Um, and she was the one who saw very early on that I was not a 35 millimeter shooter. I was not a digital shooter she said I don't know what you're doing here but this isn't working try a rolly flex and so I tried a rolly flex and it was like magic <laughs> so ever since so ever you, since oh, okay so then are, is there work then I, I, I'm looking through your your um, website uh, so from Brooklyn's finest to nobody listened is that all rolly flex medium format color film yep Wow. All, all medium format, all Kodak Portra. Mm -hmm. I stick to what I, what I know <laughs> and what I love. Do you, are you nervous about uh, where the whole color film industry is going? Or? Oh my goodness, entirely. For me, it's such a, um, it's such a spiritual thing. It's a, it feels like a very meditative process. The whole film thing and the whole process of making an image, and I think the idea that aliveness and that meditative process can be taken away is very scary to me. Hmm. Um, but I still have hopes. Uh, we have great places that still process film here. Yeah, It's a completely different story somewhere like India. Which is interesting because Kodak's history in India has been, uh, you know, they made products and factories and film just for India. Definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. And now... I. I have a bit of a relationship with Kodak. They've sponsored some of my projects. 
but they they only have representation here in North America and they're less interested in in going to places like India. So yeah, it is very interesting mm. where this whole thing is going. So you talk about uh, meditative and all uh, with the process. I had Peter Kasovitz from K&M Camera on mm. not too long ago and he mm. he described shooting with film as having a soul and it becomes much more unique to everybody's soul. Uh, and he feels like that's lost with digital photography. I, I switched from medium format 6x9 to full frame digital back when I thought color film was going to be gone in mm. a few years. But um, it seems like it's holding on. And, you know, with the popularity of black and white film, I think color film is sort of riding along that coattail. And Peter at KNM, he really thinks it's it's not going away, that it'll be around. That's so. good. Yeah. That makes me feel hopeful. Right. <laughs> I mean, I've actually, I've never thought about it, but I, one of my teachers was Jeff Jacobson, who did his, his book on, you know, the last role um, and that was like a defining moment for him. And so, of course, this happens with other makes. I've just never thought that it would ever happen to mine. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, even getting cameras repaired now is uh, an adventure. Right. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> Do you oh know uh, um, Penumbra Foundation, Jeffrey Berliner? They, so I'm, I'm, I feel bad. I'm, I'm blanking on the, the name of the gentleman who repairs cameras but they have a camera repair shop. I was just shop. there yesterday. Oh, there we go. Okay. And actually it's funny I don't know his his real name, but I know the name of his shop is called The Camera Doctor. Yes. All right. I'm going to yeah. look up the name when I air this. Yeah, cool. <laughs> great. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. No, that's a such a a nice thing to have. So, you you were raised in Canada, born and raised. Are you still a Canadian citizen? Hmm. Yeah. Is it do you have dual citizenship or I don't? Yeah, I was born and brought up in Saskatchewan, and I left when I was eighteen. And when I moved to Brooklyn, I was able to get an artist visa. So mm. I've been living here on that since. Oh wow! How long can that go on? <laughs> I mean, who knows under the current <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> and I, I want to say regime, but maybe you'll you'll edit that one out. Nah, we could leave um, that in. Regime is fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows under the current, current circumstances? Yeah. But for now, I mean, I can keep renewing it. Right. And I'm Canadian. I'm I'm not. Yes, they're know. not looking for you, so to speak. Right. right. Yeah, yes. I'm I'm like the least likely mm -hmm. target. Um, right. Although, you know, if they see all those trips to India, no you never kidding. know. Oh, yeah, right. Pakistan and, and Paci right. yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so what, um, what was life like in Saskatchewan and what did your uh, folks do for a living? Life in Saskatchewan was very simple. Um, it's in the prairies of Canada. So Canada itself is incredibly spacious, but Saskatchewan is even more so. It's just prairie land it's space it's wide open fields it's beautiful bright blue skies whenever i think of peace and calm i think of my my upbringing in canada it's just wow how lucky am i my mother is well she's currently retired um but she was a principal of an elementary school and my father worked extensively with indigenous populations. Uh, he was a professor, but he was also a social worker. And then he uh, later on in his career got into consulting for health administrations. Um, so he did a lot of, I would say, humanitarian work in his life and traveled extensively. 
So yeah, my life was was quiet, but also interesting because my my parents opened the world up to me. Right, you could so you draw a direct line to what you do to what they did. Definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. I we were never like other families. You know, most of the people I grew up with are still back in Regina, Saskatchewan. Oh, okay. You have siblings? I have a twin sister. Oh. She is a writer. She's a a journalist herself. And she's living in Geneva, Switzerland. So we have both, whether it's a karmic thing or a (laughs) biological thing, we have both taken on very similar roles in how how we see the world and how we want to understand the world. It sounds like it was both nature and nurture, yes. 100%. <laughs> was the, the work you did, Nobody Listened on the Indigenous People, was that early work then for you, or was that, that come later? That came later. That was actually, it had been on my radar for a long time, um, and I I didn't quite know how I was going to approach it. I didn't know when I would do something on it. I guess I just wasn't ready to go home and look at my own backyard and my own shit yeah yeah um it's a lot easier to look at other people's shit it is so i think it took me a long time to get to that place and then when i i figured out how i was going to do it and how i was going to get funding i i kind of made it happen and so that was, oh, was last that the year. Pulitzer Center grant? That was through International Reporting Project, mm. who are now unfortunately no longer with us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they were so great for freelancers. Um, but yeah, that was 2017. And I'm hoping to oh, wow. to go back and, and do some more this fall. And, and it was part of, um, in some ways, a, a very sort of long historical story of indigenous peoples being abused, especially women and crimes going unnoticed or unpunished or just not being interested in solving them, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think until Trudeau came into power, even the acknowledgement that this was an issue was it was just pushed under the rug. And through through my reporting and through the people that I spoke with, you know, this has been going on for decades and they've been trying to make their voices heard for for decades. And it's only now that you know, after Trudeau promised an independent inquiry into the issue that that people are starting to figure out that women, not only are indigenous people targeted, but women are are targeted on top of that. So there's starting to be some some noise around the issue. And and even with that, I think you you wrote or said somewhere that there's it's still frustrating. Like even with his be, at least opening up interest to it. There's still delays and uh, problems and uh, no real commitment yet. It's incredibly frustrating. I think it's, I can't even imagine what it's like for the families. I mean, um, there have been several high profile uh, resignations because, you know, people who are actually involved in the inquiry are, are not pleased with how it's going. There have been communication issues. Um, the families who whose voices are meant to be heard are are not being heard. And so it's like the system is continuing to fail them. And, and it's, it, this is based around, at least you're part of it, the, the murder of Kelly Goforth mm-hmm. and potentially other murders mm-hmm. that were involved by the same person mm-hmm. who people knew to have killed 
uh, is it Rochelle Bear? Yeah. Uh, and yet was still out roaming around? So, no. Um, oh, okay. The, the, the family received some answers on that one. Oh, um, okay. Clayton Bow has been sentenced, mm. but there are certainly other families that I spoke with who their family, their daughter, their sister is still missing. Mm-hmm. And there was one case where they believed that it was foul play but you know the police didn't didn't look into it at all and i think this is part of the systemic issue that even if there are cases that have been brought forth to traditional justice systems they're not being heard yeah you know trudeau's a I haven't quite figured out who Justin Trudeau is yet, right? I mean, at w- one moment he seems like the most progressive person, the next he's, uh, you know, uh, hugging Donald Trump and talking about how great he is. I mean, I don't, can't figure him out. I think many people are on the same page as you. <laughs> um, I think if I were in Canada, I would be much more infuriated by by him and and what he's doing but I think I I maintain somewhat of a distance and I think right now people need a poster boy people Mm. need need some kind of hope and you know the guy was marching during pride parade in white pants and he's been vocal about indigenous issues and so you know people need something to look to for hope especially in this Trump era right I, th- I agree with you. I don't know what he's about. And I think a lot of it is is a charade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm suspicious about. Mm. Right. He's a much more of a corporate friendly kind of uh, leader. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. And, and he did. He had a big PR uh, kerfuffle <laughs> in India. I think after that, his image really started. <laughs> he went all out he, on the uh, the on really, the fashion. Really yes. didn't hold back. <laughs> yeah, he didn't hold back at all. Which I, I think also uh, revealed a bit of narcissism. I would say. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> and also, what are his advisors? You know, these. Mm-hmm. What are they telling him? Right. Certainly, there should be some sensitivity. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yes. So, when did you um, become a part of Women Photograph? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Women Photograph began, oh, I guess it's been around for a little over a year. Right. But I remember Daniela kind of reached out to some people in the beginning when she had this idea. And I think, you know, she... I mean, we have to bring her here to to ask her this question. So Daniela has Daniela Zalkman has an open invitation to be on oh, the great. show, but she's so busy. Good, yeah, she's so busy. I think the she's doing five million things at once. Right, not not unlike you. I think I've, I reached out a bunch of times. It just hasn't happened yet. Yes. She, yeah, <laughs> she's a she's a, a a badass woman. She's <laughs> an inspiration for all of us. But I don't know when she initially started reaching out to people. I think in the beginning it was you know, I can't even give you the number, but it's maybe a couple dozen. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of spiraled. And this must have been a year and a half ago when she started this process. And yeah. and now it's grown into this this amazing movement. Absolutely. I would call it yeah. a movement. C- Kathy Shore introduced me to her at Photoville. I also had uh, Veronica Sanchez-Bencomo on from Photo Feminas. And, and I don't think the two groups 
had anything to do with the, each mm. other. But I can see, you know, through social media that I think that's also kind of linking up a little bit. And so I think I think that there's there's just this incredible energy and and you know going towards representing the underrepresented and and it it is infused in your work as well so it's it's not surprising that these organizations that are about underrepresentation are filled with people who are also about you know mm. uh, documenting underrepresentation and and people are being abused and taken advantage of and you know so it's so true you we talked about nobody listened but uh the work you're doing in India uh, you know the the demigods of Mumbai and uh women of god mm. uh, were particularly interesting and and on your website which is sarahhilton.com uh which uh which one of those uh came first or they sort of happened together women of god came first uh, the Demigods of Mumbai, I started in, well, when I moved to Mumbai, actually. So in the fall of 2017. That's a really interesting, uh, I mean, they're both really interesting projects. Uh, and But uh, the Demigods of Mumbai, uh, when I read about it, uh, it's often talked about people of uh, a third gender mm-hmm. or transgender and intersex mm-hmm. people. And this this life that they have of, of begging and prostitution and... And, and not not all that different from Women of God in terms of um, caste systems and untouchability and all Absolutely. that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Working with uh, the Hijra population, they tend to exist around train stations. Um, and, and the community that I worked with most lived around the train station that was closest to my house. And so... I would kind of walk to the train station and I would just in the beginning spend time sitting with them. I didn't take a photograph. Uh, they're very distrustful of people and for good reason. They have been taken advantage of. They have had to leave their families. They've been kicked out of their communities. And so they've kind of created this protective family around themselves and you know, I think they have to. And so for, I would say weeks, I just kind of went and I showed up and I had a friend help me um, who had worked with Hydras before, uh, a local friend. And yeah, I just got to know them. And then slowly I started photographing them. And then the, it just it opened up to me immediately. The minute I had uh, a trust with one community, they they introduced me to their friends and they took me to other train stations and I, uh, I went with them when they went out begging. And yeah, it was a really beautiful, beautiful project to be a part of. Do you think you... You learn to to instill trust through the work you did, the the humanitarian work that you did, or what, like what is it you think you do that that you know allows you to to photograph another culture like that uh, that is mistrustful of others? That's such a good question. I don't know. I don't think there's one answer for for uh, more than ten people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't. I don't think any one person could just yeah. replicate what you do, right? I mean, I think we all, any of us who work with communities like this, who have been traumatized on, you know, sensitive issues, anything like that, we have our own ways of feeling and getting in and um, emitting some kind of energy that makes people 
trust us or, or feel us. Yeah, we all do it differently. For me, I think it's just my personality. Um, I've always been incredibly compassionate. I've always been a listener. I am an introverted person, so I, I'm, I'm safe. I, I think people feel safe around. You don't me. come off as threatening. Or, no, right. I'm not threatening, and I also have spent enough time in the culture that even speaking a little bit of the language and knowing certain cultural rituals. I think helps me, but I don't have a I don't have a trick, and and I have to tell you that I feel anxious. I I whenever I go into a new project, I feel anxious. I think, oh my god, how am I going to make this happen? Now I've pitched this project and they've accepted it, and I have to deliver. And how yes. am I going to do this? Yeah, it's a responsibility now you have. Exactly. And and I have anxiety every single time. But every single time it works. And I just have to trust that. And more and more I learn to trust that. That it is it is about the the bearing witness and the being there and the listening and the and the just being of service that matters. And whatever comes out of that is up to God, the universal God, whatever God that might be. Right. <laughs> the um, yeah, because I think the I think there may have been or there was a uh, a time when uh you know a, a Western journalist would show up and and people would think oh finally we're going to get some attention some notice and maybe we'll get some help. I think that time has passed. I don't think you know journalists showing up uh, is the sort of the savior that people used to think they were going to be. Um, everybody's a little more wary. Everybody's uh, also mistrustful. Um, and so you have to approach it a different way. And it takes more time, right? You can't just sort of show up anymore and, and take photos and people think you're great. And of course, that there was a great dishonesty to that kind of work, I think, as well. You know, you spend a week with people and you get, get all these photographs and you get them all published and somehow you are the hero, right? <laughs> Right. I agree with you 100%. And I think there are so many journalists now, too, that you have to somehow, well, for me, I I feel like I want to I want to say something intimate. I want to say something a little bit different. I don't want to just drop in and take something and, and pretend like I have some kind of understanding. Um, so it's more about my ethics and my values and how I approach things. I mean, I'm sure there are many people who could have done what I did in a couple of days. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for well, saying well, that. Well, and, and, and in part because of what you do, we're not talking about, and, and I always have a little caveat for, for sort of hardcore war conflict photojournalism where people have to pop in and, and, you know, make these photos and put their lives at risk and, you know, to just to show the world what's going on. And there's always, I understand that space. That's a yeah. different space. Yeah, what what you do is very different. What you do is actually looking at the lives of the people, not, not, not in the moment of conflict necessarily, but you make portraits. Mm. You actually describe conflict through portraiture. Mm. Right. And I think that's that's really interesting. And it also ties it ties a lot of your stories together because you do get you you get this sense of this greater world uh, that 
where there is, you know, a common suffering uh, in all different places, and especially among women, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, uh, let's just say uh, not men, right? Thank you for saying that. That, that means a lot. Uh, so what brought you to that, that method of working, that way of working, the idea of portraits? Did you, had you been doing that before ICP, or did that start with ICP, maybe? You know, it's such an interesting question, because when people ask, you know, when did you become a photographer? Did you always know? And I was always a photographer. I always knew, and I was always a portrait person. I, I knew it in the art that I was drawn to, in the painters that I was drawn to, in the stories that I'm most connected to, it's always about people. And I always knew that this was the kind of work that I wanted to do. And and the way I saw the world was so visual, I just didn't have the tool. I didn't know how to get it. I didn't know how to capture it. And I think ICP and specifically Karen Marshall, she was able to just distill all this stuff going on in my head, all the noise. Oh, I want to do this work on women, and I'm I'm from this NGO background, and and she was like, "Whoa, slow down, get your rolly flex, just start taking pictures, just go out on the street, go out in your neighborhood." And when I cut out all the noise of my story and my history, it was just about people, and 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 connecting with people and taking a minute to see people. I think, you know, in our day-to-day lives, we, we just rush. And, <laughs> and, and I think even in, in storytelling and in making pictures, there's so much noise and it's so busy and here's this conflict and this violence. And for me, it's just about people. I just want to see them. Yeah, you could you definitely can see that as a thread through your work. Yeah. I, <laughs> Sorry that's so long that answer. I just No, no, that's great. Does it start with Brooklyn's finest? Is yeah. that is that the work then that you did and and of course um there's even a maybe even like a little street photography sensibility in that work because that is that kind of discovery sort of work, right? And and immediately it seems like you you started to see the progression of gentrification mixing in with people who've lived there, you know, all their lives and uh, seeing and seeing and, and not overtly critical, right? It's not it's not gentrification bad, right? It's it's just this is what's happening and this is what it looks like, mm, right? Right. Yeah. And and then was uh, Ancestries of Interest after that? The- yeah. So I did that project with Magnum Foundation. Oh, OK. Yeah. They took me on as a fellow uh, and then I, I stayed on with them a bit afterwards and uh, continued working there. But initially, I pitched the the story to focus on the Pakistani community um, in Midwood, and mm-hmm. they they loved the idea. And so we worked on that project together for I think three months in two thousand fifteen. Mm-hmm. 2014, 2015, something like that. <laughs> My memory is going. No, that's all right. <laughs> but but there was also the um, uh, that underlying tone of how things changed after 9/11, right? And and how people were treated and looked at. And I remember how there was a spike in attacks on the Sikh community after 9/11. Definitely. Uh, it just just showed you the the great 
chasm of misunderstanding of of these cultures and i agree the work then that uh you did for i i, I mentioned earlier you received uh pulitzer center grant what work mm. was that for so that or is that was, ongoing no yeah. okay um well i actually just got another grant from them yay oh wow so That's exciting fantastic. yay yeah and um, of course this is the Pulitzer organization, right? The Pulitzer yeah. Center, yeah, they're they're amazing helping freelancers fund travel and reporting projects. I mean, I I couldn't do it without them. I couldn't do it without the International Women's Media Foundation. Mm. This is how I do a lot of my in-depth stories. Um, so the first grant I did with them was in Kashmir. And it was actually about uh, the railway and the railway that was meant to link the end of the train line in Kashmir down into the heart of India. So this was Modi's grand plan to bring the two together. Uh, But while we were doing this story, I was working with a writer, Maddie Crowell, and there was a militant... Uh, who was killed and he was a major poster boy in Kashmir and so all the trains were shut uh, just completely Uh (laughs) (laughs) completely shut down and um, everything was on lockdown our cell phones didn't work but it became our story it became part of our story so Hmm. in the end these things they all happen for a reason, yeah. I suppose. You you mentioned how you do get anxious when you start the your projects and things. And there must also be a, a, um, a little bit of anxiety that you have, you know, when something like that happens, when trains are shut down and cell phones are off and, and all. Do you do you have a, a community there, friends there, uh, people there that, you know, that you kind of turn to, hang out with, uh, you know, um, are able to share these things with? Yeah, I do. I, it's interesting because I feel like I'm much better able to ask for help in India. The community there is so strong and so rich. And I think people just expect that you have to support one another in order to make it through the day. I think the environments are so challenging, even having access to certain um, cameras or items or scanners or, you know, just items that we take for granted Mm. in the West. We have to ask each other for help. And I, I'm much better able to seek that kind of support than I was here. And I don't know whether it's because people are so busy or we're just expected to kind of do Fend things. for yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. like every man for himself it here. Is. There are just so many more of us Bootstraps. here. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I have certainly the depth of friendships are are different um but the community is very rich Mm -hmm. and very supportive what kind of press credentials do you walk around with or carry or what what are your credentials like i have um the nppa press card Mm -hmm. but i've never faced issues Mm. i'm not out on you know i don't do hard news right so that's never really a problem for me Mm -hmm. and i think you know people are so open to being photographed and they're so and and i also think it's like we talked about before it's kind of the energy that i put out into the world i don't go around trying to be a hero right so yeah i've i've always kind of 
moved through India and elsewhere with great ease. Huh. And that's a real gift. What, um, what do your parents think of uh, what you do and, and the life you lead? Hmm. <laughs> well, I think my father is probably somewhere thinking right on, Sarah. Okay. That's awesome. Somewhere up there. Right. I'm sure worrying. Right. And my mother is my biggest fan, my mm. biggest supporter. Um, she's the only reason I can do what I do. She's my best friend, my family, my everything. Um, and she's my therapist, too. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, yeah, she's one of the, the biggest reasons I can do this. Mm. Has she come to visit you in India? So she has. She hasn't since I, I moved there uh, permanently, but she has she has come to visit mm-hmm. and she loves it and she plans on coming again. But yeah, I think I think my parents knew pretty early on that my path wasn't going to be streamlined or straight, and they somehow created that as well. So they've had to kind of let go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. D- uh, what was your um, kind of first success, so to speak? Uh, like what, your first grant or your first paid job or mm. first published? Oh, wow. That's such a real, oh, it's a great question. It's so, I don't know if it's the photographer's um, biggest chip on their shoulder, but actually sitting down and thinking about the things that you've accomplished is the last thing we do. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, because it, it, it's always very fleeting. It's like, what's next? Yes, exactly. Get me, get me what's next. Right. I would say the biggest success was the, the Magnum Foundation project that ended up being published in the New York Times. I think that was my first publication with the New York Times. And that was always my dream. I always Mm. thought, oh, wow, if I could get there, Uh then things would be great. (laughs) But my first paid job was with the Brooklyn paper. And that was that was pretty... (laughs) (laughs) That was exciting, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it was was definitely exciting. It, It taught me how to do photojournalism and Mm -hmm. how to file and how to write captions (laughs) um but it wasn't like the feeling of being published in the new york times right (laughs) so you're obviously on social media uh is instagram your kind of platform of choice right now yeah i use instagram a lot i love the people at instagram Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) i think it's a great platform to share stories, to share work, to connect with editors. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have that close connection before with editors. I've had people find me on Instagram. I've gotten jobs on Instagram. I, one of my good friends, uh, Wilfredo Riera from Venezuela, recently had a medical condition and it's spiraled. It's gone all over social media. I put it on mine. People have donated. It's just an amazing way to connect with people. Yeah. So, so Will Riera is um, went to ICP. Uh, was he there with you? He was. Yeah, uh, and he does this great work in Venezuela. Hmm. Um, he is um, uh, the sole uh, um, breadwinner for his family, and now he's hospitalized. And of yeah. course, not being paid. And there is a GoFundMe mm-hmm. uh, page that you you've linked to. Uh, Greg Miller's linked to. Uh, I know that uh, um, 
it always feels like, uh, you know, photography is big and people are all over the world, but it's a very tiny community <laughs> in the end. Just the fact that I, I don't know who Will Rear is, but I know the whole story, right? Yeah. Just, just from a few people yeah. who we all have in common. It's really amazing. Actually, these are the moments where you, it makes me feel so emotional. I just see that he's raised far above the goal and it's been spread everywhere and people are just so supportive. It makes you realize how uh, strong and caring and compassionate the community is. Right. So you you shoot with the, the Rolly Flex. How many do you have? <laughs> oh my goodness. This has become... <laughs> This has become a real issue, in fact. So I have my sole baby, mm-hmm. my only Rolly Flex. And every day, every day I'm online, I'm looking for my backup. I'm looking for my backup Rolly Flex and I haven't found my second baby. Oh, no. Yeah, but it's, I think this is part of the anxiety as well. Um, <laughs> I, of course, I have a digital backup, right. but... I, I need that that yeah. second body. Do you have other and lenses I'm, for it? No, I don't. Oh, so what lens are you? I use the with? 75, oh, the fixed the standard lens. lens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I'm on the hunt, so uh-huh. if anyone has. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm sure there are people out there who uh, have <laughs> some leads to some Rolly flexes. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Did um do you ever shoot work then digitally? I do. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I yeah I began not really being able to figure out 35 and how to use digital but once I got a handle on my form and through the square I'm much better able to Mm. use digital it's somehow the result was flipped for me Um, but yeah I do a lot of assignments on digital especially with a quick turnaround oh yeah yeah and what do you shoot with then Uh, I use a mark three Mm-hmm. The Canon 5D. Got it. <laughs> so what uh, what are you working on now? Are you are you um, do you have something planned here or in Canada? Yeah. So I just got a grant from Pulitzer Center to do some work in Pakistan. Oh, OK. Yeah. So that's I'm getting my ducks in a row for that one. Uh, that'll be coming up in July. And then after that, I'm taking some much needed time in August. (laughs) And then uh, in the fall, I'm hoping to do more work on Nobody Listened on missing and murdered indigenous women um, in both Canada and the US. Oh, okay. Yeah. What um, in what area of the United States? So on the border, in fact. Oh, okay. Yeah. On the border of of Canada and the US. there was a film called Wind River, actually, on the issue. Uh, it was based on true events, and it was in Wyoming. Um, but the areas that I'm hoping to focus on are on the border with Saskatchewan and Alberta. Um, so North Dakota, Montana, maybe Minnesota, maybe mm. Wyoming. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Um, depends on how much funding I can get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in Canada, I'll, I'll be going back to uh, British Columbia and Manitoba. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you see these as, um, you know, kind of photo essays then and then you would look to get them published or shown or what? So what is your preferred outlet for your work? Yeah. So what's ended up happening with some of these funding bodies is that you actually need publications behind you already. Mm. My preferred method of working is, well, 
either through an editor that I trust very well who can work with me through the process um, and figure out, you know, where I need to go and what I need to capture. And oftentimes that isn't the case. They will say, we love the idea. We love your work. We're not sure. Why don't you go and do the work and show us when you get back? It's pretty rare that I pitch a project actually beforehand because Mm -hmm. I really like to have the freedom um, and not feel that kind of anxiety. Yeah, you don't want someone's voice in your head while you're working saying, and we'd really like to see a lot of this. Exactly. (laughs) And what about the action? Yeah. Yeah. So that's my my preferred method. Mm -hmm. I like getting getting the funding and doing it in in the way that I envision and then going and pitching it. Have you thought about books? Yes. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Definitely a book for this project. Oh, okay. You have a a deal or? I don't. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. No. Just the the idea. Right. (laughs) The idea is there. Everything comes after the idea. Uh Yes. No, that's a good attitude, right? Because you you believe you're going to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, did I miss anything? We miss um, any of the work that you wanted to mention or things coming up? Do you think about shows at all? Gallery work. Yeah, I have had some work shown actually at Gallatin Galleries. I had a a solo show in the fall. Oh, okay. Yeah, before I went to India. I do think about exhibits and Mm -hmm. I think because I shoot with film, my work actually would be really suited for for display and for prints. And I would like to get more into that, kind of the more fine art side of things. So that's on my radar. And I have to think about how I can go about doing that, whether it's through an agent or yeah, or, <laughs> or meetings or things like that. But yeah, it's definitely something I'd like to, to explore. Do you ever um, collaborate, work with other photographers? Hmm... No, (laughs) I work with writers a lot. Uh I've never, aside from being on group reporting trips and kind of throwing ideas off of one another, I've never done a project with another photographer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is not unusual with photographers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I think it's, there's something really nice being with other people, especially in kind of hard locations. Yeah. Just having other women and reporters around right that i consider kind of collaborative absolutely no (laughs) it is i mean i think getting together after something and decompressing with other photographers is collaborative it's huge yeah (laughs) it's huge we all need that emotional support right what um what is your arrangement in in india in terms of processing film and and scanning and all of that yeah so uh very good question. You'll have to you'll have to edit this one. Okay. Um, it actually depends on how quickly I need to turn things around. I prefer not to process film in India. It's it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. If I compare the film I have processed there as opposed to some somewhere like LTI, it's just night and day. Yeah, yeah. So if I have the option, I would prefer to just hold on to it and process it somewhere I really trust. If I can't do that, there is a pretty reasonable place in Delhi um, and they have an Imicon scanner. So that tends to be my go-to. Oh, okay. Do, have you ever shipped film back? Never. No, yeah. 
That would be so risky. Oh my God, I would just, (laughs) I wouldn't sleep. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and then how do you uh, handle airports now? Because it used to be very easy to do get a hand check on your film or... Um, you know, use the lead bags, uh, which they don't, I don't even think they allow the lead bags anymore or make them for that matter. Uh, so what do you do? Do you, do you get all your film hand checked? I actually have a lead bag. I insist on a manual check. Yeah. I've had film, they say it can go up to 800 speed, but I've had film completely destroyed in the x-ray machines. So They're a lot stronger than they used to be. They're really strong, yeah. and especially in countries that you have, they have old machines. I have no idea yeah. what's going to happen. Who knows what happen. the settings are. Exactly. Yeah. So I always insist on a manual check, and the only place I've ever, ever had an issue is Dubai. They kind of force you to put your, your film, film through. through the machine. If it goes through one time, I think it's fine. Right. But yeah, I've never really had problems with that. It's more the annoyance mm-hmm. of having to transport all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like flying? I hate flying. <laughs> oh my God, I hate flying. And I think it it gets worse with age. Mm-hmm. I think yes. the, the jet lag and the the lag time between flights and I think it used to be so much more glamorous and Mm -hmm. now there are these low cost airlines and everything's about like just in and out and heightened security. There's nothing pleasant about it. No, there's nothing pleasant about flying, especially since 9-11. Especially in economy. I mean, it's one thing if people are paying for for business class, but let's be honest, photographers don't get to fly business class. No, (laughs) no. Even if they're sent somewhere, they don't fly business class. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. No, I don't. No, I can't say I like flying. Well, I'm not trying to pry, but that, do you often just travel alone? Always. Yeah. I'm always traveling alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> so, again, that's one more thing that, I mean, it's fine. I don't mind being independent. I am very independent. Mm-hmm. But when you're traveling, you know, 14 hours on a flight, you're like, well, how many movies can I watch? Right. Or, <laughs> and how many strangers sitting next to me can I avoid? Exactly. Like, <laughs> stop touching me. <laughs> oh, Oh, well, thank you very much for uh, finally we, we got it together uh, and coming out here on this very rainy day. Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be able to, to reflect and talk about work and kind of hear about who else you've spoken to. And it's it's not very often that we get to kind of sit and, and reflect yeah. and, and talk about our our joys and what we've accomplished so that's really nice and i I do love that about doing the show oh uh, andre de wagner says hello oh andre (laughs) i love him oh i'm such a huge fan of his he's such a great guy and such a great photographer oh yeah but yeah that's what i love about it i I do love this uh, idea of building this community so Mm -hmm. so thanks again thank you too all right bye everyone bye Bye.